The subject of angels has long fascinated most people. Books have been written about them. Movies and TV series have been based upon their existence. And frankly, students of the Bible are no less curious than the population in general when it comes to the matter of the angels. Inquiring minds want to know about these beings from another realm who can on occasion appear and who witness human events. Who are the angels? Hebrews chapter 1 is a chapter that tells us something about the angels. I invite you to turn there with me as we begin our study of Scripture this morning and our theme, The Meaning of Christmas to the Angels. Hebrews chapter 1 is, in its context, a chapter about the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels, that he is superior to, supreme over the angelic realm. In verse 6, the writer says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, a reference to the coming again of Jesus Christ, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. And then in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? We see several things about the angels here. In the first place, angels are God's servants. They do his bidding. We also see that they are spirits. That does not mean that they don't exist, or the figment of imagination. But it means they exist in a different realm than the one that we live in. We live in a physical, material realm. Their realm of being is the spiritual, and so they are spirits. They are fitted to live and to serve God in that realm. And we see that angels render service, it says in verse 14, to the heirs of salvation. I would take that to mean you and me. Here is a text that at least suggests the concept of guardian angels, which some of us hear about occasionally in our growing up years. Angels have some ministry of service to those who will be the heirs of salvation. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, we find out one more fact about the angels. In contrasting us in this age to those who were related to God in the past age, the age of the law, he says in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. The thought here is that angels are many in number. And when John sees them in the book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, he says that they are too many to number, at least from his perspective. 
We also learn from the New Testament that angels are organized into hierarchies or systems of authority. They are not all created equal. Some have greater authority than others. And some have particular responsibilities. The seraphim and the cherubim seem to have a special relationship to the throne of God. They seem to be a special class or kind of angel. They are described as having wings. But angels in general are not necessarily pictured as having wings, except on our Christmas cards, of course. But as much as we know of angels, they do not, the the general kind of angel that appeared, uh, they do not possess wings. Only a few of them are identified for us in the Bible. There are three of them specifically. One is Michael. Not all angels are Michael and not all Michaels are angels, that's for sure. But this Michael is an angel. He is named in Jude verse 9, Daniel chapter 10, and also Revelation 12, a passage we're going to look at a little bit later. Michael is called the archangel, which means that he is a very powerful angel, perhaps the most powerful of God's serving angels. And then there is another angel that is named, and that is Gabriel, who had the privilege of announcing the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias, and then the announcement to Mary, also of the birth of Jesus. And then a third angel is named, and that is the angel called Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, 12, his name means morning star or bright one. This is the angel that fell from heaven because of his pride and rebellion against God. He has now been renamed as the devil and as Satan. So who is Satan? He is an angel who fell because of his rebellion and pride against God. Now the angels are deeply involved in the flow of history, human history. Their efforts in the angelic realm affects the direction that human history takes. This is clearly stated to us in the 10th chapter of Daniel, a place that we don't have time to read this morning. The angels were involved in the coming of Christ to the earth, just as in the future they will be involved in his return to the earth in glory. He will be accompanied by an army of these angelic beings. Now, to the angels, the meaning of Christmas might include three ideas. This is a sermon, of course, so there have to be three ideas. First, the idea of work. Secondly, warfare. They all begin with W, too, because this is a sermon. Work, warfare, and wonder. Those are the three key words I want us to think about this morning as we consider the meaning of Christmas to the angels. In the first place, to the angels, Christmas means an assignment of work. An assignment of work. The angels were created by God and are employed by Him in carrying out His divine purposes in the universe. As I've already suggested, they assist God in providentially 
and sovereignly overseeing the events of time so that God's plans are ultimately realized. Don't ever think that somehow God's purposes are going to be derailed along the way by any human effort or any effort of uh, Satan. All of that is limited. God's sovereign purposes will ultimately be accomplished and the angels are employed by God in causing those purposes to come about. Keep in mind that the angelic realm is another whole reality which we know very little about. But we are given some windows of insight here and there in the scriptures. As I've also already said, the angels were dispatched to announce Christ's birth. Now we want to look at the announcement that was made in Luke chapter 2. So would you turn there with me to the Gospel of Luke as we come to a rather strange bunch of people who hear the first announcement of the birth of Christ. And we look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. And so we see a singular angel who appears to the shepherds to make the announcement. And as he suddenly stands before them, notice he is not flying up in the air. He is standing before them. There is light all around them. It's called the glory of the Lord, which would be the Shekinah, one would think, of God. Or at least the reflection of that. The glory of God was there to lit up the whole area where the, angel, where the shepherds were camped. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Now, that was important to say because at the end of verse 9 it says they were terribly frightened. And it's hard to put into English what the original says. But it says that they feared a great fear. These men were scared out of their wits. Just like you would be had you been there that night. And so the angel tries to calm them and he says, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And so although the angel did not specify that they were to go to Bethlehem, at least he implicated that by what, uh, implied that by what he said here, and how to find the baby. And as soon as he had spoken that, suddenly, just as suddenly as that first angel had appeared and God turned on the light bulb, just that suddenly there was another group of angels that appeared with the first one. And they were saying something different. They were praising God, and this is what they said, verses four, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Notice the rendering of the last part of verse 14. It's much better than the King James 
which has led to some uh, misunderstanding about what the angel was saying here. In the first place, they direct a message toward heaven, glory to God in the highest. And then they direct a message to the earth, and on earth, they say, peace. Glory to God, peace to men, but not to all men. Not to all men. To those with whom God is pleased. And who are they? Well, they are the ones who are in obedience to God. They are the ones who have believed God. They are the ones who are trusting Him. Those who have pleased Him in that sense. To those, God gives peace. G. Campbell Morgan says, The heavenly host was chanting the anthems of welcome not merely to that baby, but to a new race, the race that will spring from that baby. From that child, that son of God, child of Mary, born and laid in a manger, will spring the race which will satisfy the divine demands and please the heart of God. Peace there is, peace for them. The old prophetic word rings its minor chord of solemn warning down the ages, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. First pure, then peaceable. Now Morgan's point is that that evening, as the angels made their announcement, they were proclaiming peace to a new race of people, a new family, a new entity, those who would belong to God through this babe that was born, his death and resurrection. Peace to them who would be related to God through this child in his saving work later at the cross. But to those who remain in unbelief and in sin, there rests that ancient word from the prophet that says, There is no peace to the wicked. In our world today, there are those who are at peace with God because they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who have no peace with God because they remain in their sin. And every one of us in this room this morning is in one group or the other. There's no middle ground. Either we have peace with God or we have no peace with God. And the whole difference rests upon what we do with Jesus Christ and what our response to Him is. Well, the angels then slowly withdrew from the shepherd's field back into heaven. Now, how they did that, we are not told. But they slowly went back, they withdrew, until finally they were taken out of the sight of these shepherds. They went back, actually, to their normal realm of existence, which is the spiritual realm. Can you imagine the joy that was the shepherds on that first Christmas night? As they heard the good news and then went to Bethlehem and found the situation just as the angels had said to them. They went away rejoicing and sharing with everyone that they met what had happened and what an example they give to us. That having come to the Savior and found in Him all that God says we'll find in Him, we should then go out and spread that news to all who will listen, just as did the shepherds. But coming back to the angels, can you imagine the excitement that was in their ranks that night as at least a group of them were given this assigned work of coming into the realm of the material 
and announcing to us the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To the angels, Christmas means work. But to the angels, it also means warfare. It means an intensification of warfare. We're going to turn now to the book of the Revelation in the 12th chapter. As we read this text, keep in mind that the language here reflects what John literally saw. We can only try to imagine the difficulty that he had in attempting to relate this vision to his vocabulary and experience. But he is led by the Spirit of God in doing that, and what he writes he literally saw, but also keep in mind that what he saw is somewhat symbolic and representative of actual entities. In other words, what we see here represents something else, as we'll see. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she might, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And we'll stop there for the moment, because uh, this part of the chapter is historical. In other words, these things um, are indicators, are symbolic of events that have already taken place. Now we need to identify these people or these characters or these entities. Who is the woman? Well, commentators have a variety of descriptions for this. I believe that the best one, for a number of reasons, is that the woman represents the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel here is said to be pregnant, to be great with child. And who is this male child? Well, the identity of the child helps us to identify the woman. The child's identity is very clear to us in verse 5. For this child will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Furthermore, this child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so the child is the Lord Jesus Christ to whom birth was given by the nation of Israel. He came from the Jews. And then the great red dragon. Well, again, that's identified for us in the text. A little bit later on in verse 9, it is Satan, the devil. 
And finally, there is, in verse 7, another important character here, and that is Michael and his angels who waged war with the dragon. Now let's talk about verses 1 through 5 just very quickly. We learn from this in the first place that Christ's lineage naturally is from the Jews. He is an Israeli. A lot of us like that little Christmas carol the children sing. Some see him lily white, the baby Jesus born this night. And then the verses go on. Each child pictures him like himself. I think it's a beautiful carol. And it's true. But if you stop to think about it a moment, our Savior is probably not uh, light-skinned with blue eyes and blonde hair, as we often see him pictured in our Caucasian uh, paintings, depictions. But rather, he is probably dark-haired, olive-skinned, with dark eyes, being a Jew. He was born of the woman. And uh, just as it says here, the dragon was waiting to destroy the child, so we see throughout the Old Testament, as well as at the very birth of Christ, the attempts of Satan to cut off the Christ. Time and again, he sought to kill the possibility of the Savior being born to the Jewish people. And then when the Savior was born, he worked through Herod to try to literally kill the child himself. All of that is history. And then we see the child being caught up to the throne of God in verse 5, and that is a description of his ascension back to heaven. And so certainly it's a, a sweeping and broad description of the child. It does not include the cross or the resurrection but it picks out some of the important things and it puts him back in heaven. All of that is history. That's where Jesus is today. Now, in the chapter, there's no indication of, of a time separation between verses 5 and 6, but that is the case. Because in verse 6, what is described is something that yet takes place in the future. It's elaborated upon later in the chapter. We don't have time to go into all of that. But this woman, and who is the woman again? Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. You say, are those literal days? I take them that way. And the, the same period of time is again repeated later in the chapter. Oh, it's called differently there. Now in verse 7, John moves his description to the angelic realm. He says, there was war in heaven. Now that doesn't mean in the New Jerusalem, in the abode of God, but it's talking about the heavenly realm, the realm of spirits. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven that is, in the realm where they are at the present time in their activity. Satan is called the prince of the power of the, what? The air. So his realm of operation, his activity is in the atmosphere. And he has access, in some sense, to this spiritual realm, the heavens. 
<clears throat> but in verse 9, things change. Now remember, we're talking prophecy here. We're talking about what will happen in the tribulation period yet to come. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. What a dreadful description of him that is. But how accurate. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so however this is accomplished, what it tells us is that Satan's realm of operation is limited at this particular point in the future to the earth. He no longer has the kind of access that he has today, and he responds very angrily. A loud voice was heard in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth! And the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So there is a statement here in these verses, anticipating that final victory that will come. Satan's being thrown down just one step toward that. And in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so this is that yet future persecution that will come to the Jewish people in the tribulation period, which will exceed, I am sorry to say, in its ferocity, the persecution that Hitler plagued them with in World War II. But God supernaturally intervenes and protects, and in verses 14 through 17, that is further prophesied to us. Now I read this chapter. Because it tells us of that warfare that is constantly taking place in the heavenly realm. And it mentions the birth of the male child. And then his being caught up into heaven at his ascension. And it mentions the woman. And it mentions the persecution that will come to her. And the anger, the wrath of the great dragon who was thrown down to the earth. All of this suggests to us that to the angelic realm, Christmas means an intensification of spiritual warfare. The point here is that the birth of the Christ signaled to the angels the coming defeat of Satan. Now when I say to the angels, I mean to the holy angels as well as to the fallen angels. The birth of the Christ signaled to both groups the coming defeat of Satan. And it undoubtedly caused the warfare in that realm of the heavenlies to be intensified and to grow worse. And one day, when Michael and his angels finally succeed in casting Satan and his angels down to the earth and limiting them, that warfare will even become more intense, particularly as it affects human beings and uh, the Jews in particular. We need, ladies and gentlemen, to be aware of spiritual warfare. 
If we do not become aware of the warfare that is going on, we become the witless victims of it. There are cosmic forces of good and evil that are battling for supremacy. Now we know already who is going to win. The Word of God tells us that. But Satan does not believe it. Not only is he able to deceive the whole world, but he is thoroughly able to deceive himself. He is the most deceived of all and is convinced that somehow, in the end, he is going to be able to destroy the male child and take the place of God on the earth. He is convinced of that. Therefore, his warfare is very, very intense. And so as the angels of God think of Christmas, I believe they must surely identify with Christmas, with the Incarnation, the intensification of their struggle against angelic evil beings. I believe that's part of what Christmas means to the angels. So as you and I enter into Christmas, we ought to be aware of some facts too. That around this whole event that we commemorate at Christmas, there is unseen warfare taking place, which has intensified because of it. And if you and I do not learn to enter into that warfare by prayer, if we do not learn to put on our spiritual armor, we will become the victims of the enemy and not the victors that God wants us to be in this world. A Christian who is living for the world who is living carnally, is a Christian who is just begging to be defeated by the enemy. In fact, he's already halfway there by the lifestyle that he's choosing, by the disobedience in his life. And so what this tells us is that as we come to Christmas, you and I need to be alert. We need to be on guard. We need to be obedient. Our lives need to be right. We need to be living purely so that we are standing in spiritual warfare. And through prayer, entering into it. You say, how does that affect it? I don't understand all of that. I just know that as we pray, it makes a difference in the successes that the angels have. So that as we pray for the advance of the gospel into the darkness of heathenism, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And so I exhort all of us to be involved in that as we come to Christmas. Finally, to the angels, Christmas means wonder, a source of wonder. You say, well, are the angels really capable of wondering? Well, I believe they are. They are described as having personality. We can point to places in the Bible where it says they have emotion. There's great joy in the presence of God over a sinner who repents. They have intellect. They know, and they learn. And by the way, they learn from watching you and me. I wonder what they're learning. And in addition to that, they have, they have will. They can choose. For example, Michael chose to do battle 
with Satan over the body of Moses, according to a very mysterious verse in the book of Jude. So they have personality and they are able to wonder. I believe that in the first place they wonder at God's appearance in human form. I think they must, by wonder, by the way, I mean astonishment. I think they are astonished at God's appearance in human form. Turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. <clears throat> we find here a condensed statement that the Apostle Paul draws from uh, some source in his day, perhaps a hymn or perhaps a doctrinal summary of some sort. But he says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 he who was revealed in the flesh, we know who that is, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels. Isn't that interesting? That in the middle of these brief statements it says, he who was revealed in the flesh was beheld by angels. Now angels live in the very presence of God. They're able to look upon as much as we know, the essence of God. And yet, now they see God coming in human form. He was revealed in flesh. He was incarnated. I believe that that night at Bethlehem, there must have been a scrambling for room to look into that, that stable to see God incarnated. You say, how many angels have to scramble to look in? I don't know. If you can tell me how many can handle, stand on the head of a pen, I'll tell you how many have to scramble to, uh, to look into the, the, the stable. But the point is that I believe that they were absolutely amazed at what they were seeing. That the eternal God who had created them, who dwells in magnificence and majesty on high, should now be found here in the body of this baby. I believe that Christmas to them is a source of wonder. And I also believe it's a source of wonder because of God's display of grace towards sinners. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 for what is our last reference this morning. 1 Peter 1. Uh, Peter says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What these verses say is that the prophets themselves, as they were inspired by God to write their words, did not understand fully what they were writing. And they sought diligently to try to understand what the Spirit of Christ in them was saying. And it says in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. You. Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Moses. They were not serving themselves as the Spirit of Christ was prophesying. They were serving you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now notice the end of verse 12. 
things into which angels long to look. The language here suggests that the angels are bending forward and stretching out and gazing intently with deep desire that they might seek to understand and comprehend the gospel of the grace of God. They wonder. They are amazed at the grace that God has poured out upon you and me through the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Christmas mean to the angels? It means that it's a source of wonder. A wonder that the infinite God would come in form of a baby. Wonder the, the, the display of the grace of God for sinners like us. And yet, and yet how else could God teach the angels of his grace except that it be displayed for unworthy sinners whom he has chosen? As for the angels, I believe that Christmas ought to be a source of wonder to us. We, too, ought to be amazed at what God did 2,000 years ago when he came into the world. We ought to consider the grace of God. Better, we ought to receive the grace of God that was manifested then. What was a wonder to the angels is an opportunity for us. You see, the Savior was not born to save angels. Angels cannot be saved if they have fallen. The Savior was born in the likeness of human flesh to save human sinners. So what is a wonder to the angels is an opportunity for every sinner to be saved. Dr. Andrew Bonar of Scotland was on one occasion saying goodbye to a medical missionary friend of his who happened, happened on that occasion to be accompanied by his sister. It was to her that the aged servant of Christ, Dr. Bonar, said, Well, my dear, what is your name? And she replied, Christine. What a lovely name, he said. You see, my dear, you have Christ in your name. But have you Christ in your heart? The missionary sister remained silent, but she could not escape the question. And that night, after a long talk with her brother, she received Jesus Christ into her heart and was saved. And then she went on to serve in Edinburgh students and was a great servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, the issue this Christmas season is not Christ in the manger, but, so, but it is rather whether Christ is in your heart. That's the question. You may wonder, as the angels did, but have you received personally, by faith, this Christ who was born, that he might later die and be resurrected for you. Is Christ in your heart this morning?
Let's bow together. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed. I wonder how many can say this morning with assurance that only the Spirit of God can give that Jesus Christ is living in your heart. Would you lift your hand? Yes, he's there. That's wonderful. I wonder if there is someone this morning who would receive the Savior, though. You know, the angels are watching. And somehow the angels are able to perceive who is and who isn't a child of God. And it says that there's joy in their ranks when even just one, just one sinner repents and trusts the Savior. Would you be that one this morning that would cause the angels to rejoice at this Christmas season? And how much greater your joy than theirs should you do that? Will you in your heart of hearts right now pray and by faith tell the Savior that you know you're a sinner, one of those he came to save, that because he loves you, and died for you and rose again, you're giving yourself to him and receiving him for yourself. If you've done that this morning, I hope that you'll come by the front door here as you exit and shake my hand and say to me this morning, I receive Christ. Because I'd like to be able to mail some things to you that will help you to grow in your Christian life. Father, I pray that having learned something of what Christmas means to the angels, we will learn something more of what it can and should mean to all of us who are yours by faith. I pray that we will be busy with our assignment of work sharing the good news. Thank you that you've given us that privilege. I pray that we will be involved in spiritual warfare, realizing the intensity of it because Christ has come and is coming again. God, make us faithful and good soldiers of Jesus Christ to stand on the front lines and not to be defeated. And then I pray that we will all find Christmas a source of wonder and amazement and worship as we recall and remember what you've done, the amazing things that you've done in coming into this world to save us. We pray in Jesus' name.